Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. I cannot believe how much we have to talk about. Uh, I am sitting here at my second desk in the office, staring at two magazines that just came in the mail from friends of mine, one in Washington State, one in California. Very cool, very different. I'm going to hopefully do blog posts about each one of these. Pretty great. Pretty great to get things like this in the mail. I am so fortunate when it comes to correspondence because I have friends who take the time and make an effort. And the correspondence I get in the mail is just so wildly good. It's I leave it out because any time, nor, normal, normal times, not COVID times, but normal times, my house is like a revolving door. There's people in from all over the place. I always leave the correspondence out because people see it and it motivates them to do it themselves. And the people who send me correspondence are so talented. It's scary how good this stuff is. My stuff looks like holy hell compared to what I get in the mail. I just want to make a couple of notes here before I start, before we get to the, you know, all the mess that is this week's podcast. I literally just had to put my cell phone in the other room because the feedback from the cell phone through the recorder, if the phone is within 20 feet of the audio recorder, it picks up feedback. And just as a test, I took it and I put my headphones on and then I moved it up right up next to it. And it sounded like the end of the world. It sounded like what I envision nuclear war would sound like. So if you're one of those people who carries a cell phone on their body all the time, especially if you are a male listener of this podcast, and you are dumb enough, and I know that's tough love, but I'm going to say it anyway. If you are dumb enough to carry your cell phone in the front pocket of your pants, right next to your huevos rancheros, you are a moron because this what's coming out of these phones is so bad for us as human beings. And why would you carry it in your front pocket right there? I mean, come on. You could take a third grader, show them an anatomy diagram of the human body and then a cell phone and say, where's the worst place you could possibly carry this? And a three-year-old would point at your front pocket. So my point is, don't carry your phone in your pocket. Just put it in a bag. I keep mine in a backpack, um, which is probably not great, but it's better than taping it to my leg, basically. Anyway, wanted to get that out there. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let's talk about uh, another tough love thing here before we get started. Another week goes by, and we have another story about Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. This was in The Guardian. I don't have it in front of me, but the, the gist of it was that uh, Facebook claimed that they were cracking down on all kinds of misinformation, lies, political oddities, falsities, racism, hatred, etc. But in fact, what they did was they tailor-made the program to help President Trump. And obviously, Facebook was hugely instrumental in him being elected in 2016. We know this, and they're doing it again. And Zuckerberg is doing it again. And my point here is if you're on Facebook and you're on Instagram, you are the problem. You cannot complain about American politics and use Instagram. You cannot do it. This happens on a daily basis. Everyone I know is on Instagram. Almost everyone I know is on Facebook. And most of my friends are left-leaning, although I have a ton of friends in the, in the, in the right and, and some hardcore friends on the right. And I have some friends in the right who are who are incredible donors to the to the Trump campaign. So I'm, I try to remain friends with everyone. I think that's the smartest position to take is that I don't want to live on an island. I don't want to only be around people who believe what I believe. I don't want to only be around people who have the same political views as me. That doesn't make any sense at all. We'll never make progress if that's the case. So I try to be friends with everyone. 
But it's clear that Facebook ha- is in bed with the Trump campaign. And they have proven that in 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020. And yet again, this week they get caught. So if, if you want to be on Instagram, great. You want to be on Facebook, great. Just don't waste my time complaining about things on social media because you are the problem. And I hate to be that kind of tough love, but it's true. Uh, another quick point before we get to this mess. Uh, the sports industries are in deep trouble. And the fact that we are trying to come back in sports right now in the middle of the, the worst COVID outbreak in the world is ridiculous. We have NBA, MLB, NFL, college football, college baseball, tennis, soccer, golf. All of these sports are testing positive. And you have some sports that have the players agreement where you can't, they won't identify who's testing positive. It's just a joke. We're way too soon. And we should just shut the whole thing down now and say, look, if the federal government comes up with any semblance of a plan at all in any way, shape, or form, then potentially we revisit sports in 2021. But right now, this is a monumentally bad idea. And I think maybe this is one of the things. If we shut off Hollywood and we shut off sports, then Americans might have to take a, take a minute to look in the mirror and identify who we really are and the kind of problems that we're facing right now. And those are not going to be solved or helped in any way, shape, or form by infecting a bunch of professional athletes. All right, who's this podcast for? Before we get to the mind-blowing points, and oh, by the way, I'm on a clock here. I've got a blurb call in 40 minutes that I'm actually speaking on. Not anything major, but just I have to, I have to participate, and um, I've got 40 minutes, so I'm a, I'm a bit of a clock here. I'm going to have to race through this stuff. This podcast is for anyone who's gotten in a fist fight at Chipotle. If you've thrown down at Chipotle, then welcome aboard. This podcast is for you. Our hero of the week is twofold. The number one is a guy named Lachlan Morton. And if you're into the cycling thing, you will know who Lachlan is. He's, a, he's an oddball. He is an oddball. He's an Aussie, I think, that rides for a team that wears a pink, pink outfit. I don't forget the name of them. Something education. EF education, maybe. I don't know. I should probably know that. But Lachlan is, was a professional road cyclist and has morphed into this professional cyclist Swiss Army knife, where he does these endurance rides over the mountain passes. He, he just did the, the, the Cocopelli Trail in Arizona. He's done the Trans-Britain race. He's done all these things, and he's just an interesting dude. But the reason he's my hero is he is the skinniest human being I have ever seen. I have tiny legs. My legs look like I hit pause on development in like sixth grade, right? They're tiny. My father had huge legs, muscular, not an ounce of fat on my dad's legs. They looked like the legs of an NFL lineman. And and it doesn't make any sense because my brother didn't get them. My sister didn't get them. I didn't get them. And I have the skinniest legs in the family. But when I see Lachlan Morton's legs, they're even skinnier than mine. And he's out doing these insane endurance events. And he's funny, and he's kind of a quirky guy. I really like the uh, films that are about him. Uh, He seems like he's got something more going on than just cycling. And then, don't forget Canada. I didn't forget about you, our hero this week. Of course, it's going to be Canadian. Yes, I threw an Aussie in. I do love Australia. If Canada won't have me, I'm turning to Australia. I'm coming. Get ready, whether I'm swimming, rowing, sailing, or... I don't know, moonshotting over on some uh, Elon Musk device to get to Australia. I will do it because it's not that I don't want to be an American. Uh, and it's not that my frustration with America has begun recently. It's been going building for a long, long time. 
it's just that when you travel and you get to these other places and you look at sort of the the level of common sense and the the less radicalization of the population it's it's enticing it really is canada's nice and they're they just have more common sense and they have their act together a lot more than we do in some ways so we're going to go with james Nismith as our hero this week from canada the, oh the great white north eh no use steering now you hoser um, James Nismith invented basketball. And for those of you Americans who, who throw down with round ball and, you know, you got the tats and the, you got the baggy clothes and the, and, you know, you, you hang out at the schoolyard and you're, you're all about b-ball, just know that it came from the great white North. It did not come from here. So Nismith is our guy. He's the one that invented this, how he did it. No idea. Probably frozen inside during a terrible winter. And uh, was pounding, you know, killing some darts, and he decided to come up with this game, which he did. Now, my experience, here's my tie-in. I was born in Indiana, so technically I am a Hoosier. And if you know anything about the Hoosiers, you know that we like flat gray weather and cornfields. But we also identify more than anything else with basketball. And if you've seen the movie Hoosiers, by the way, which is an amazing movie, Gene Hackman, who's in, by my estimation, about 74% of all movies ever made, you have Gene Hackman, and you got uh, Dennis Hopper, and a variety of other people. It's a, it's a good sort of small-town Indiana basketball story. You've probably all seen it a thousand times. Uh, so I suck at basketball. So I'm born in Indiana, and I loved football. That was my sport. I was terrible at basketball. And my father was terrible at basketball. My brother's terrible at basketball. So we were all just muddling in mediocrity every time we would play. But my father, I could turn my father inside out playing basketball. Because I would just start talking smack. Before we even decided to play basketball, I'd be talking trash to my dad. And I'd be like, I'm going to rain on you, old man. There's nothing you can do. I'm going to score inside, outside. I'm going to turn you around. I'm going to snap off your ankles. We played, our, our driveway was sort of paved, but then it had these dirt sections. It was probably the single most dangerous location to play basketball in the history of the world. And so we had this, I can't say the name, but a corner of our basketball court, we nicknamed after an NBA player who blew out his knee. And we called it the such and such corner. And if you tried to make a move in that corner, you were going to slip because it was like sand on top of concrete. It was like ice. You were playing on ice. And I would just start talking smack to my dad, right? We'd play horse or we'd play one-on-one. -on -one, and I'd be like, old man, I'm going to rain on you and just... and. I would just, and then I would go up to him and bump into him and then call a foul, right? And he would just get so mad at me that he could barely see straight. And then he would finally just get so mad he would leave, right? That's the kind of son I am. And so I have a great appreciation for basketball. And, uh, you know, my brother and I would play, we're terrible. Both of us are terrible. And we would just, you know, we'd have to quit before the game was over because nobody could score. It was that bad. Anyway, that's our hero of the week, Nysmith, for giving us the round ball. Thanks. Thank you very much. My question of the week and this is legitimate. Did Greg Brady single-handedly ruin Hawaiian tourism? And I, I would say for a 10-year period after the Brady Bunch, when Greg goes down in the surf contest because of the voodoo doll or whatever the little doll he had, da -da 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 you know the scene I'm talking about. Greg goes down, the world, the world holds its breath from wherever, California to Calcutta, the world, when Greg Brady went down in the surfing contest, was like, there's no reason to live anymore. I think it probably put a huge dent in Hawaiian tourism. That's my 
guess, and I'm just curious about yours too. All right, point number one this week, and I have got 32 minutes here to get through this. Point number one is a muffin recipe. Yes, Uncle Dan bakes. This seems to catch a lot of people by surprise. I don't know why we're not living in the 1950s, but um, I cook all the time. I think I'm a decent cook. Not a great cook. Decent. I prefer to eat prison food. Now, let me explain. I have friends here in Santa Fe who are really remarkable chefs. They, they, can, they can do anything. They're, when you go to dinner at their house, you know you're going to get something you've never had, and every course will be done to the nines. And it's great, but I always leave there feeling horrible, and my body's like in DEFCON 1, full revolt, like don't do this to, you, to me again kind of thing. And my wife and I were joking last night, and I said, I kind of prefer prison food. I like really, really, really simple, basic food. Um, the other night, I, could, I, we had, I had like a potato and some tomatoes. Last night, I had some brown rice and cauliflower. Now, for a lot of you, you're like, that is worse than prison food. And I get it. To me, I'm eating this brown rice with cauliflower. And I'm like, this is perfect. And I ate it, and I had one little bowl. And my wife's like, you're not eating enough. You're not eating enough. And I'm like, no, I, I am. And it feels great. So I bake. I love to bake. I don't ever use recipes. And it drives my wife insane because she's, uh, she's like Rain Man. She's got to have all the details. So I did this uh, recipe, and I'm going to share it with you now. And it's for gluten-free, blueberry or peach. I made both. Uh, walnut, red chili, gluten-free vegan muffins, and they don't suck. That's the amazing part. When normally you throw in gluten-free, guaranteed suck. You throw vegan on top, doubling down on the suck. But these, even my wife ate them and had this incredible look of shock on her face and said, oh my God, these are really good. Gluten-free flour, not going to give you any, any amount because I don't measure. I'm not joking. I don't. I just do it all by feel. It's instinct. Gluten-free flour, uh, a, one of those little squeeze tubes of applesauce that you would give a child, right? Those are perfect. Squirt that sucker in there. Cinnamon, red chili, uh, baking powder, blueberries, walnuts. Uh, what am I missing? God dang it. I don't use oil. I don't use eggs. You don't need them. Uh, I know I'm missing like 14 things. Vanilla would be something good to put in there. And uh, let's see, baking powder. I put a little bit of oat milk in there just to get a little moister than normal. And I put maca powder. And I think that's about it. And you mix it up. You spray a pie, a pie, a pie tin or the little muffin tin with uh, coconut oil. Let it sit. Put it in there. It makes about 9 or 10 approximately. I think my baking pan holds 12. I make about 9 or 10. They're awesome. Cook them for at elevation. You're going to cook for 30 minutes at, at Flatlander. If you're a Flatlander... You only need 20 minutes. From the time I have the idea to make muffins to the time they're done is about 35 minutes. That's a mix and everything. Uh, I, you know, I'm probably leaving out some ingredients now that I think about it. But you're on the right path, right? You're on the right path. That's, I've given you the backbone of how to make these. Okay. Let's see here. Uh, point number two is there's two things. A friend of mine sent me a text message and said, you've got to look at the latest issue of The New Yorker. There's a mind-blowing essay from a 29-year-old ceramics major in Philly who did this essay on the Black Lives Matter protests, and he sent two photos, or two you know, cell phone pics of the magazine, and it looked pretty damn solid. And I was like, wow, this is really good. Uh, but it also reminded me of reviewing portfolios over the past couple of years. And for every 
story or a portfolio I see, like what was in The New Yorker, I see hundreds of just kind of meaningless, and I know that's a little bit harsh, but meaningless portfolios because they're not really the person's portfolio. Much of what I see today and when I review portfolios is the work that the photographer has already seen someone else do. This is a huge differentiation, by the way, from when I started in photography to what I see now. When I started in photography and I was around a bunch of other photographers, even though we were looking at photo books and people were doing, you know, uh, projects were being done by other photographers, there was no sense of, hey, I saw so-and-so do this. I'm going to go copy that. So last year I looked at a portfolio and it was from a very young photographer who had traveled to 60 countries, six zero. And he's showing me this portfolio, of course, on an iPad. There's way too many images in the, in, the, in the folder. And I'm just like, I'm sitting there looking at it thinking, how quickly can I get through this and not insult this person? And he admits that he traveled to all these places to photograph in the locations that he'd already seen other people do and then restaged the images that he'd already seen done. That is one of the most profoundly confusing things I've ever seen in my life and ever heard in my life in terms of being a creative. I don't understand that. I don't understand. That means you've never had an original thought. You've never had really even understood who you are as a photographer. And I think that's probably the, one of the single most important things you can possibly do. But apparently this New Yorker essay is badass. And so if you're out there and you get the New Yorker uh, or if you don't, it's worth buying a copy because it looks really good. And I've only seen two frames. I have not been out. I've not been to a newsstand. I haven't been anywhere since March 9th. I've not even been in a store. You all know me, you know, my immune system, you know, my health history. Uh, I'm trying to be safe and be smart so that I can keep doing this amazing podcast for the rest of my life. Cause I know everyone needs it because it's really important. Okay. Point number three, rest in peace, Olympus. Oh, the Olympus company of Olympus is gone. Uh, this is a real bummer. Okay. So Olympus, if you don't know, is a camera manufacturer that's been around for 84 years or something like that. Some insane amount of time. And Olympus is gone. This is no surprise. This is no mystery. Uh, let me just talk about a little shift that happened about 20 years ago in photography. The shift in photography that happened was the, the influence of the professional photographer began to decline and the rise of the prosumer photographer began to increase. And every single brand, from Sony to Canon to Kodak to Fuji to everyone else, saw this transitioning happening. And they basically, without having to say it, and there were plenty of conversations in private behind the scenes, which is the pros are too hard to work with. They're temperamental, they're insecure, they're arrogant, they're egotistical, they're accusational, they're demanding, they're too difficult to work with. And they also do not have the same influence they once did. And what's happening is we have this pro, the rise of the prosumer, and there are exponentially more prosumers than there will ever be professional photographers. And so the industry completely and utterly shifted from pros to prosumers. I was working for Kodak when this happened. And you could see it coming from a mile away. And you were like, okay, these people are a lot easier to work with. There's a lot more of them. And number one, they are willing to buy and buy and buy and buy and buy. Prosumers, the moment they were willing globally and primarily in two markets, the United States and Japan, the moment that the prosumer market was proved a willingness to buy more than one new camera per year, this is what exploded the digital revolution. This is why camera companies, instead of, let's say you have camera company 20, 25, 
and they come out with the 25X camera. And the 25X is a decent camera, but there's four things that are wrong with it. Well, instead of fixing all four and coming out with the 26X, they, they fix one thing and they come out with the 25.1, and then the 25.2, and the 25.3, and the 25.4, because they know the prosumer is, is the single geekiest species to ever walk the face of the earth. And they know that they'll buy the 25.1, and the 25.2, and the 25.3. The pro is waiting around going, I'm not going to waste my money on that. You fixed one thing. I'll rent it. I'll keep using the 25 and then I'll rent until the 26 comes out, right? So the pros to the companies became less important. And it's true. Pros are really hard to work with. Let me repeat that. A lot of professional creatives are incredibly difficult to work with. You would think they would be the easiest people in the world to work with. They're not. They're really difficult. So you're working at one of these companies and you're like, I know these people are important. I know I'm supposed to be supporting them, but they're making it really difficult. And the prosumers were like, hey, what do you got? We'll test it. We'll try it. We'll buy it. We'll do this. We'll do that. So it's a huge shift. And Olympus, sadly, Olympus has, has, is responsible for some of the most incredible photography in the history of our of our genre, of our industry. And it sucks because the less options you have as a consumer, typically the quality is going to diminish, the, the advancements are going to diminish, and it sucks. And there's a lot of good people who are working for, for Olympus. I've got friends who work for that company who've been there forever. I was an Olympus OM4TI fan, major fan. I thought that was one of the coolest cameras ever made. I had a black paint Olympus OM4TI with the aperture on the lens barrel and the thing was super light and the shutter had this, it had a 1970s diesel Mercedes-Benz sound to it. Clunk, 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 clunk. It just felt amazing. Compared to the junk that's being produced today for the most part, um, and there's a lot of good stuff being produced today, but some of the digital stuff is really, really, really flimsy and it's temporary, right? It's temporary. You buy it. And I mean, someone called me yesterday and asked me what cameras I was using. And when I said X-T2s, the line just went dead. I think they were just like, what the hell am I doing talking to you, loser? We're, the four is already out and they're probably working on the six, seven, eight right now. You're still using a two? Jesus, what an idiot. Okay, that's me. I am an idiot. Point number four. Um, this was another reference. Um, just to, I just want to mention this quickly. Facebook has lost like $15 billion worth of ad, ad revenue based on the fact that they kept lying about trying to limit hate speech when in fact they're trying to promote it because that's going to help Trump get elected. Um, this is just simply about one thing. This is about money. That's all it is. It's about money, 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 money. When you look at American culture and you look at the root cause of most of what we're, what, what we're dealing with, it's greed and corruption. And those two things are hand in hand. They're like, they're like bridesmaids. Imagine two flower girls in white dresses skipping down the aisle throwing flowers, and one's called greed and one's called corruption. That's us. And so Facebook is just another in a long line. These tech companies want and need to drive us apart. The more we are driven apart, the more we are agitated, the more we are reliant upon them and the corporations that are basically buying the only thing left of you that has any value at all. It's not your work. It's not your personality. It's not your soul. It's your data. And that's what's happening. And we all know it and everyone plays along. So, hey, here we are. Okay, point number five. Oh, Canada, here we go again. No, I'm, not, I'm kidding. It's not just Canada. But I was thinking about this the other day. So I had a talk with a financial planner 
just as a joke, right? Because, you know, it's not like I have enough money to like interest any real financial planner or investment uh, portfolio manager for that matter. And talking to this, uh, uh, this financial planner, and they said, look, you know, you've, you've done a decent job. You're not a complete idiot. Um, and you're, you're okay. Like you're, you're okay. But the one thing that could ruin you is healthcare. If you lose your healthcare coverage, the cost of healthcare in America, you can bankrupt yourself very, very quickly. So everything you've worked for in your life can go away based on paying for, and they kind of said to me, based on services, you, meaning me being very healthy outside of having Lyme, I'm, you know, I, I just did 20 miles on my bike at five o'clock this morning. I eat well, I sleep well, everything. He's like, you're paying for stuff you don't need. And the, and the system is so gargantuanly corrupted. Um, this could be a real danger for you. And what it realized was healthcare and the problems here in America, which are, again, greed and corruption from the powers that be. We could do universal healthcare. We're one of the only first world countries in the world that doesn't have it. We pay operatives to stir up unrest about other countries who have it. We pay people to stir up unrest about Canadian healthcare, about UK healthcare, any country that has universal healthcare, the Republicans and others have operatives that basically spread misinformation about the realities of medical care in these countries, whether it's Denmark, Canada, UK, whatever. And so we know this because they've come out and said, this was my job, this was my role. Um, I can't live with myself, but this was my role was to, was to spread misinformation about these. But healthcare in the United States basically assures us that we will never realize who we actually are. Because it, imagine how many talented people out there that could be doing something that even they don't know they're capable of, but they can't because they're trying to cover healthcare costs. So you say to yourself, God, I've got this idea to, uh, to build a vaccine for Ebola, but man, I don't have healthcare and I'm gonna get dinged on my taxes and I'm gonna have to take this other job to get healthcare, which is gonna eliminate the ability for me to make the cure for Ebola, whatever. There are millions and millions of Americans who are being held back because of that one thing. And then when you see and hear our government talking about this, you realize it's never going to change until the revolution comes because these fat cats are just lining their pockets with healthcare, with the insurance companies, pharma companies. They don't want to change it. Why, if you're a senator or congressperson in the U.S., why would you want to change this when you're, when you're lining your own pockets from it? And so it's really, until we remedy this, this is one of those foundational things. I would put this up there with our education system. Until we remedy education, until we remedy healthcare, we will never succeed as a country. Again, I just can't imagine that happening until we change these. <clears throat> and to change them is a really scary thing because it, it, means, it means sacrifice from every single American, and I don't think we're there yet. Okay. So this next point is really important, and it's weird, and my wife will probably kill me for, for doing this. Um, I'm not going to give you all the details, but I think one of the things that pandemic has been beneficial to the pandemic is it's allowed us to sort of get inside our own wire, so to speak. And that's like, a, I guess, a war term, if you will. Like you built, a, you built an outpost in the jungle, or you built an outpost in the Korangal Valley, and then you put wire around it. And that little world inside is your world, because there's people outside trying to get to you, right? And so the pandemic has forced us inside, both physically and mentally, inside ourselves. And so I think this ultimately is a good thing because it allows you to, to understand life in a very different way and to not take for granted some of the things that we took for granted before. So what I realized was that I've been married for a long time. 
And my wife is one quirky little creature. I mean, she is quirky. She's a handful. She's like uh, Lollapalooza in human form. Every single day, there's an intangible that just makes you go, whoa, like out of right field, like a rocket coming over the wire from nowhere. And you're like, holy cow, that was close. That happens like 14 times a day. But I realized there, there were two or three things that I could do for her every single day that were little, that to me were not anything. Sure, they were additions to my routine, additions to things that I wouldn't have done for myself. But I realized that if I do these three little things for her, the intense happiness that it brings her is astounding. The simple things. And I'll give you one example of what it is. I'm not going to tell you what the other two are. But the first one is just making her coffee. So I get up at 5. I make my coffee, I read, I get my bike stuff ready. And about an hour later, I will put my bike stuff on, get on the bike about 6, 6.15. Today I rode for 20 some, 21 miles. But before I walk out the door, I make her coffee. And I set out all the supplies that she needs. Because she doesn't just drink coffee. She makes this horrendous concoction of like cocoa, uh, agave, honey, uh, spice it. I just can't even look at it. It doesn't, it doesn't taste like coffee at all, but it makes her happier than anything else in the world, including me. And the second I started making this for her, she would get up in the morning and in the morning, you don't want to go anywhere near her. It's like a Wolverine. You basically keep your distance and you keep your 12 gauge with the safety off and your finger on the trigger moving in a circle, trying not to make any quick movements, and you stay away from her until, until about 10 a.m., and then it's the safe zone. The green zone, the lines go back up. You can go through the checkpoints, and you can get in to see her. But before that, it's full-on. Uh, you don't want to go anywhere near her. But when she gets up and that coffee's made, it sets the tone for the entire rest of the day. There's an intense joy, happiness every single day. It's like Groundhog Day. She forgets it from the day before, and then she wakes up and goes, oh my God, my coffee's already done. And it just to me was like, why wasn't I doing this for the last 28 years or 25 years? But then also, what else can I do in my life for other people that would do the same thing? What am I taking for granted that I could just take a minute of every day to add to my schedule that would do this, give this feeling to somebody else? And I think to myself, okay, am I the only, I can't, I'm not the only one thinking this because people are doing great stuff all the time. But then I look at like our culture in general, and I think, how amazing would this be to add this in? But the, I, the odds of that happening are probably not, not going to be so great again. Okay, uh, point number, I'm skipping point number seven because I'm running out of time. Point number eight is about Blur Bookwrite software. And this is, for you don't know, this is the software that's free and downloadable. You make your books in it. And I, last week, I had my first pandemic meeting, which was another meeting with an artist in a gallery in Santa Fe inside which was really creepy because I hadn't done that in any, since March, early March. So we both wore masks. She sat at the end of one table. I sat at the end of another. We kept our distance, et cetera. But I was trying to help her put together her first blur book. And this is someone who's very talented but doesn't own a computer in the sense of like a laptop. It's just that she's only had iPads and so wasn't able to use BookWrite. And so I was sitting there with her trying to help her get started because she has the, the, the bones of being able to make something really good, but the software was brand new. And so what I did is I opened up a document for her and I dragged her images in and I started to just design on my own with her work. And I, I did probably six or eight spreads very quickly and then turned the computer around and showed her. And she was like, oh my God, you know, I wish I could just hire you because you're so good at this. And I said, well, I'm not really, I'm not good at design. Anyone who knows me and any of the designers that know me know that. Maybe I'm better than someone who's never looked at the software, but I'm not, I don't have design chops, right? That's not my, my toolkit. But what I realized and I told her was, 
as soon as we look at this and we and we plucked two ideas from the spreads that I'd made, a grand total of two things, and she's like, I like that and I like that. I say, great, now what you're going to do is throw away this entire document and you're going to start over. And that's the point I want to make is I use BookRite as a sketch tool all the time. I'll just open it up without any book in mind or story in mind. I'll open it up, I'll drag some content from my desktop in, and I'll start throwing in its spreads. And I'll start testing and tweaking and experimenting. And I'm trying typography over images, over colors, over shapes, or whatever. I just constantly use it as a sketch, and then I throw it away. And then the next time I go to make a book, in the back of my head, I'm like, oh, I tweaked, I, I did this test, I did this experiment. That might work well here. So if you're, if you're opening book right, thinking you're going to hit a home run every time, you're probably going to make yourself miserable. So don't be afraid of playing, of testing, because you're not printing it unless you want to. I don't print these experiments. I just test, and then I throw it away. And then I open it, test, throw it away. Open it, test, throw it away. That's, what, that's the creative process. So I wanted to share that because so many people put this unrealistic pressure on themselves to make great things when they've never made anything before. And so it can, be, can hold people back. So just relax, baby, relax. Uh, oh, boy, let me see. This is a tough one. I don't know if I want to do this one right now because um, this, is, this is another thing about tough love, about publishing, traditional funnels of power, um, mailing list for my AG23 friends and family. Oh, speaking of AG23, I released my first contributor series film. Uh, and this is something that I came up with a couple of months ago. I was trying to figure out ways to help promote the contributors more, uh, more so than what we'd already done. So yes, we printed their stories. Yes, we put it on the website. Yes, we're marketing it through Blurb. Yes, we're marketing it through, I think Beyond's, Beyond's done some kind of, I don't, well, I don't know if Beyond has done actual marketing, marketing of AG. They've paid for everything. So they have gone well above and beyond any other company I've worked with. But the point is, I did the first film, which is on Andrew Kaufman. I thought, well, hey, why, why don't I do a film on each contributor highlighting why we thought their work was good for the zine and why we think this is important work and important story. So I launched the first film a couple of days ago. It's eight minutes long. It's Andrew voiceover with his work and then me talking about why we liked it and why we promoted it. He shows off his book. I have heard from him this morning that he has made book sales from the film, which is that was the key to the whole thing is we are trying to promote the contributors. He's sold books. That's fantastic. The book that he made from Panama is unlike any other book in the world on that story. There is simply no other book like it. And the book design wise was, uh, was a chance. They took a risk. They did things in the book that I was like, Oh, this is really interesting. This is totally different. This feels like a book that a traditional publisher would have never done because they just, it's too personal. It's not scripted enough. It's not crafted enough. It's not perfected enough. And that's why it was so good. And so that's the point of the AG23 films. I'm now working, starting to work on Frank Jackson and Charlene Winfred. Uh, and people are busy. The pandemic has really challenged uh, people. And I totally get that. So I'm trying to work on multiples at the same time because some people are going to be tied up. They're not going to get the stuff in on time. But it's been really fun. And I wish my filmmaking skills were better, but I'm hoping to improve them along with uh, the series because we're already starting. I've got five people lined up for the second issue. I think we're going to cap it at five this time, uh, give people a little more space. We're paying them as well. And so we don't have endless amount of money to pay people for work. So we need to make sure the, the contributors at a certain level. But we got five really good stories, really good with the theme of transition. That's the theme of the second issue. Okay. Uh, let's see here. Uh, 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 what do I want to do? Um, let's talk about, 
I want to give a brief mention to Lens Culture. I think that's an organization you should keep your, your uh, ear to the ground. I also want to uh, give, it, give a tip of the hat to someone called Il- Iliads, I-L-I-A-Z-D. He was a Russian book designer, and if you don't know his work, he was decades and decades and decades ahead of his time. He did just remarkable designs in illustrated books that are worth uh, checking out. Uh, second to last point here is we've had a little touch of white nationalism here in Santa Fe. And there were two things that happened this week. Trump retweeting um, tweets that were basically white power and white nationalists. That is Trump pandering to the base. That's Trump nodding his hat. That's Stephen Miller behind the scenes saying, hey, we're not, we haven't forgotten about you. You're our voters. We're on your side. We'll take care of you. Don't worry about it. That's him tipping his hat to the white nationalist groups. We had a little situation here in Santa Fe. There's a restaurant downtown called India Palace, and India Palace has been there forever. Downtown Santa Fe is very small. Everybody knows the restaurant. The owners of the restaurant would make care packages for less fortunate people. They would make hundreds and hundreds of these care packages. They'd been doing this for a long time. It's a staple restaurant in downtown Santa Fe. Well, a white nationalist group broke in, robbed them, and also did about $100,000 worth of damage, spray painting Trump 2020 on the walls go home, ISIS, you know, the typical nonsense of the white nationalist groups. And it really destroyed this place. And so now there's a local, um, there's a, people are, are donating money to get the place back up and running. But again, this is Trump. This is exactly what we get for electing a guy like that. And I think for the very first time, because now with the pandemic and now with the Russia story, the Russia story, not the, not the Mueller report Russia story, the one about bounties in Afghanistan, which, by the way, is no big surprise because Russia has been trying to get at us for any way possible for the last 10,000 years. I get it. We're, we're historic adversaries. Um, I don't think the, the population in Russia and the population in America are, are probably fine with each other. I think, um, you know, that's, that's the case in most places in the world. It's the politics on both sides. It's the Putin versus Trump kind of thing, or Putin with Trump in this case. But um, this is what we get when we get someone like that in office. And so these white nationalist groups are, are flexing their muscle. They're, they're spreading their wings and saying, I know that we got coverage from the very top. And so it just sucks because India Palace here was a— uh, is is such a you know the, they'd been up, they'd gone out of their way to help the community and it's the one place that gets drilled so it just sucks right it's kind of a negative thing but I'm not going to end on that I'm going to end on on something uh, the two aspects two aspects that keep popping up that I think a lot of younger photographers don't understand about being professional photographers and this goes way outside of like the, your professional business plan your website. <laughs> your marketing, your agent, you know, whoever that. This is about serendipity and tenacity. And serendipity and tenacity are far more important than your camera or your film type or what software you're using. And a lot of times people don't understand if you're going to do this professionally how bad you have to want it because it is not easy. And also the serendipity. And for example, my, my particular case, when I decided to be a photographer, my dad, one of my dad's best friends who was an FBI agent said, hey, I went to school with a guy. I think he's a photographer. Turns out that was Dennis Brack for Time Magazine in Washington, D.C. Uh, talk about a good contact. And I, I think I mentioned this in podcasts before, but I flew to D.C., spent a few days with Dennis. He took me to the White House. We went to the Naval Academy graduation. I photographed President Bush. I did all these things with him. That's called serendipity. The other part is that my father was a competitive shooter, and he had a friend that said, oh, I was a photographer, too, at the Dallas Times-Herald. I was there when, when uh, Lee, uh, Oswald shot, or uh, Lee, what's his face, shot Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Jack Ruby shot Lee Harvey Oswald. 
And he loaned me a bag of cameras. Those were the first cameras I ever used. They were Nikon FEs or FM2s or something with lenses. And, you know, that was it. That's serendipity, right? So I was super lucky, uh, but I was also tenacious. I, was, I would work the 3 to 11 shift at the newspaper when I got an internship and then eventually ended up staying for about 18 months instead of three months. And I would, my shift started at 3 p.m. And I was often out at sunrise working because I was trying to get a leg up on what would happen later in the day. If I could get up early with early light and get something good in early light, like a feature picture or a standalone pick, then it would take pressure off later in the day because at 3 p.m. someone would be lazy, wouldn't do their job, and suddenly they had a hole on section front. B1, we need a picture for B1. We need wild art right now. And they'd send you these 911 pages that would you know, send your heart rate. No wonder journalists like die of heart disease. It was terrible. And so I was tenacious. I was shooting essays I knew would never run. I bought a police scanner. I was shooting stuff at night after from like 7 p.m. to midnight. I was shooting the carnage that was happening on the south side of the city. And I was tenacious. I did a project on uh, what it's like to be Muslim and live in America. I started that in the late 90s. And that was really difficult to do. But I was like, I'm doing this. I'm doing this. I'm doing this. And everyone I knew in that story was trying to talk me out of it. So you have to be tenacious and you've got to rely on a little bit on serendipity. But to, to do that, you have to get out into the world, obviously pre-COVID, and we're not talking about that. Okay, I think uh, I was going to tell the story, and I have one minute to tell this. I was uh, doing a story in college on gangs, and I was riding around with an anti-gang unit, and we had just gotten in a car chase with someone in a stolen car, and, uh, and we had a really close call. And it was two, two cops in the front, me in the back, and then, okay, so we, we survived, and then we went on another stakeout, and we were on a stakeout, and there was a call came in for all units. There was a huge gunfight at a store, long story, and so we get on the freeway. We're going 120 miles an hour, and we crash into another vehicle, who basically was their fault. But we laid down over 300 feet of skid marks and then slammed into this car high speed. I was in the back behind the plexi and just slammed into the plexi like really hard. The car was totaled. Both cars totaled. We went back, got another car, and went out again. And I, was, I loved it. I was like, this is the best thing I've ever done in my life. But I just wanted to throw that out there as an ending story that uh, Uncle Dan was in a high-speed crash with the police, uh, and, uh, and he made it. And he was still taking pictures because that's the kind of gal I am. Thanks again. I'm running out of time. Uh, I don't know what episode this is, 36, 37, 38, something about that. I, I can talk all day. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll talk to you next week.